We all have those events in life that change things for us, don't we? Think about how life changed for you when you started school and then when you graduated. When you said, I do. Or when you heard, it's a girl or it's a boy or both. How life changed when you got the call with the test results from the doctor. And we all have those pivot points in life when things change. Well, here on Discover the Word leading up to Christmas this year, we want to know if there was a time when Christmas became more than Santa and stockings and presents to you, more than choirs and candles and carolers, more than family. Was there a time when things changed and Christmas really became Christmas to you? Because when Christmas becomes Christmas, well, that's one of those things that changes everything. Christmas changes everything. That is what we're going to talk about for the next couple of Discover the Word podcasts. And welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries and some special conversations for Christmas called Christmas Changes Everything. Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, and Bill Crowder will be at the table for each of the conversations, and Daniel Ryan Day will be joining them in some of the conversations over the course of this study as well. And what they'll do is look at some of the main characters in the Christmas story and discover how for each of them, the events of that first Christmas changed the course of their lives in significant ways. They were never the same because of it. And I think we'll be challenged to think about how when Christmas really becomes Christmas for each of us, it changes everything. And so let's get started. Elisa will be leading us through this material that she put together that also has become a book that I'll tell you more about later. And she begins part one by asking Mart and Bill this question. I've heard it said that women give birth to Christmas. (laughs) <laughs> what does such a sentence mean to you? What do you think of that? Well, it means the woman probably does all the hard work. <laughs> <laughs> like the meals and the presents and the shopping. It's kind of a stretch of a really good day, though. It sounds like women are kind of taking over. Oh, you can hear it that way. I hear it more the way Bill took it, is that we're the ones who create the atmosphere where Christmas happens in our homes. That's what happens at our house. The day after Thanksgiving, I set the tree up. And then my Christmas preparations are done. (laughs) Everything else. Marlene decorates the tree. She decorates the house. She decorates the food. She decorates everything. Yeah. I bring it up because, honestly, literally, a woman did originally give birth to Christmas. Okay. (laughs) You know, Mary became the mother of Jesus, and he became our Savior. Yeah. So the first Christmas, the true Christmas if you will. I do. That's a wonderful way to see it. Mm -hmm. A little different than me taking all the credit for the presents. (laughs) Or the day. day. (laughs) Exactly. This week we're considering how really Christ's birth, how one day, if you will, but it really was a season of events that transpired, that this reality of Christmas, the original Christmas, how the original Christmas changes everything. Mm -hmm. And we're going to look at this concept from the peephole of various characters in the Christmas story, in the first Christmas story. We're going to look at Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and Herod 
and the Magi. Mm-hmm. And look at how did Christmas change them. And I hope as we process through this, it'll cause us to consider for ourselves, how has Christmas changed everything mm-hmm. for us? I think if we understand Christmas and it hasn't changed us, then we should be a little bit concerned because yeah. everything about it is changing. Mm. And when we say that, we're not just talking about the day. We're talking about the implications mm-hmm. of the meaning behind the day, right? That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And thanks for underlining that. Today, we're going to look at the woman, Mary, and how Christmas changed her forever. And I want to push this into Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. And this is a very familiar story mm-hmm. of when the angel comes to Mary. But as we're reading it together, let's think about how did Christmas change Mary? Mm-hmm. So let's start off in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Who wants to start us? I'll get us going. Okay. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, now who's Elizabeth? Elizabeth is Mary's cousin, but she's actually the mother of John the Baptist, and probably a distant cousin of some sort. Okay, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Marty, would you pick it up there in 28? Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. And people used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God will never fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Christmas changes everything. For Mary, what do we know about her? She's a what? Virgin. And she's probably pretty young, maybe 12, 13. She's pledged to be married, and the fancy term for that is... Betrothal. Yeah, betrothed. Usually, am I right, that young girls were betrothed, pledged to be married, engaged around the time of 12, 13, their adolescent crossover, right? That's what we're told. In New Testament times? What we know about the New Testament version of marriage is that usually a man and woman were set up by their parents to be married. They were actually kind of married before, you know what I mean? This betrothal. In the terms of a promise, there right? The covenant. Yes, thank mm-hmm. you. That's a good way to put it. But they hadn't consummated the marriage. And they lived at their own homes with their parents for about a year or so during this season of proving your faithfulness and proving out your commitment. And at the end of that time, the bridegroom would come and take the bride in a big procession to his family's home where they would have a big party and they would actually then consummate the marriage. Mm. So we find Mary somewhere in the middle of this process when what happens to her? She's declared pregnant. Yeah. I mean, which is a weird kind of Mm -hmm. concept to be declared pregnant, but that's sort of what happens. It is sort of what happens. I'm interested in the fact that there are no parents mentioned in this passage, and it seems odd that there aren't. And it made me wonder if maybe she's 
orphaned in some way. If maybe her parents have predeceased her, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But you have this feeling of her great vulnerability when the angel, and who's this angel who comes to her? Yeah, Gabriel. And what do we know about Gabriel? Well, he's described as an archangel in the scriptures, which seems to be a high rank. But every time we see him, almost it seems like he's delivering a message to somebody. I mean, he seems to have some kind of a role yeah, kind as of a, a messenger. Declarative role. Yeah. Of, I'm just I'm feeling for Mary. Here's this young twelve, thirteen year old virgin who's betrothed but not yet in her husband's home. And Gabriel, you know, the messenger of God comes and says, You're highly favored. Mary's response is interesting. Look at verse 29. Could you read that again, Bill? Sure. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now, Mark, what did yours say? Because yeah. I remember it reading it differently. It just says confused and disturbed. Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Yeah. I loved that translation, Mark, confused and disturbed. And I'm interested in your comment that the parents are not mentioned. I had not noticed that before. Hmm. And it seems to, one way or the other, it emphasizes she has reason to feel alone. Yeah, I think so. And we have this very raw, vulnerable woman. I mean, you can feel that she wonders, she's curious. And the words for you, Mart, were she's... Confused and disturbed. Confused and disturbed. And I think we often, because the angel says you're highly favored, we go slipping over those emotional words Mm. that the Lord gives us here in this story. And to hear her, I really commiserate with her. You think if you were her, if this angel is coming and you're feeling so vulnerable and he says, you're going to have the Son of the Most High, that's a term used for the Messiah. Mm -hmm. Now, Mary probably understood the promise of the Messiah. She was a devout Jewess. She knew scriptures like 2 Samuel 7, 9, which referred to the Messiah coming from the Davidic line. I mean, she wasn't like a novice. She would have understood some of these things. And what I love, you know, if you think about another person in scripture who was told that they would have a child in an unusual way, Zechariah, he didn't go for it in the same way. He doubted God and God wasn't happy with him. Does Mary doubt God when she expresses this confusion? Well, I think there's a difference between confusion and doubt. And I think, you know, when you compare what happens with Zechariah and what happens with Mary, maybe the difference in their heart is seen in the difference of the angel's response. Because when Zacharias says, this can't be because I'm too old, Mm -hmm. the angel says, okay, you're not going to be able to talk until a baby gets here. And then with Mary, it's kind of like, no, it's okay. Mm-hmm. This is what's going to happen. He explains the process. But to he her. says, don't be afraid, Mary. So again, it's don't fear. He must have sensed mm-hmm. yes. that in her confusion, there was also almost a sense of fear. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important to pull this up. Here is this young woman who, again, we've been saying over and over, is vulnerable, who's stunned, who's surprised, who's unsuspecting. And the word given to her is not to be afraid. In that next moment, and something happens here in terms of how she gets pregnant in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come over you. The Most High will overshadow you. The angel explains to her how this is happening. And it's kind of reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1, where the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the deep. There is a a covering, a provision by God for this young virgin woman in her moment of vulnerability, where actually Christmas comes to be in her womb. Christmas changes everything. And we begin with the story of Mary, a young woman unsuspecting that she would be the fulfillment of God's promise. In one moment, she's a virgin. 
betrothed in the next moment. She is actually the woman God will use to bring forth his incarnate son that will save the world. Christmas changes everything. It certainly changed everything for Mary. We're talking about some of the characters that we find in the Christmas story and how for them Christmas changed everything. And so absolutely, that first example, Mary's world was changed. But so was Joseph's. I mean, did his life turn out the way he thought it would? No, for sure. For Joseph, Christmas changed everything. And so that's what the group will be talking about next. What experience, if any, do you guys have with step-parents? Well, when I was a pastor, obviously we had a number of blended families within our church. It was usually a mixed bag of happiness and frustration and challenges and, I mean, just, you know, the whole thing. It all depends on the circumstances, doesn't it? Right. It depends on the people. Mm -hmm. You know, step-parents can sometimes be adoptive parents as well. You know, where a biological child is born to one or the other, and then through death or divorce, a new family is made, and that new step-parent adopts the child. I come from a family that was blended, if you will, actually broken. It's mainly how ours went. But my parents divorced when I was five, and very soon after, my father married another woman who had a daughter as well. And so I had a stepmother, and I had a stepsister. And it's an interesting chemistry for the children. It's not really a family of choice. It's a given reality that we have to learn to negotiate. It's interesting because scripture tells us about a certain (laughs) step-parent of a very well-known character in the Christmas story. We're looking at how Christmas changes everything. We looked yesterday at how Christmas changed Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, a virgin betrothed, a young woman, not yet married, to becoming the mother, the woman who would bring forth Christ into the world. And today we want to look at Jesus' stepfather. We want to look at Joseph. How did Christmas change Joseph? Boy, I think Joseph is one of the most undervalued characters in the New Testament. I just Why? Think, Why do you say well, that? Well, just because even though he doesn't have a single word recorded in scripture that he spoke. That's a good point. You see him in the background Mm -hmm. doing things that help Hmm. in bringing the Messiah into the world. And we don't know how long he stays around though, right? He seems to leave early. You know he's around to age 12, right? True. Uh, After Mm -hmm. that, we don't know what happens. Mm -hmm. Between Jesus being 12 and 30, we don't know what happens to Joseph. Because Mary is talked about all the way to the cross, but Joseph is not mentioned after Mm -hmm. So let's look at the Christmas story from the perspective of Joseph's story and see what we do learn about him. Because you're right, Billy never says anything, and yet he's human. He's got real stuff going on inside him with this dramatic revelation of what's to happen to him. Let's pick this up in Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 18 through 25. Mark, could you start us? Okay. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. 
But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Okay. All right. You know, as we looked yesterday at Mary, what do we know and what did we learn about her situation when the angel comes to her and announces that she's going to become pregnant? What's the context of the relationship that Mary and Joseph have? Well, they're engaged, and you would mentioned that they had in their engagement process, they had kind of like a pre-marriage where they were married in every way except living together and physically consummating the marriage. Mm. And there's about a year between those two events, and they're in the middle of that year. And you also noticed, Elisa, that there's no mention about parents, Mm. and there's almost this intended environment of aloneness with her. It feels that way with Mary, and she goes off to be with Elizabeth, too, which further underlines that, which is interesting, rather than being with her own mother, but that's another story for another day. You're exactly right, and I Mm. like the way you said that, Bill, that they're married really in all intents and purposes except for the reality of having consummated the marriage. So this is a deep commitment, probably one that the parents arranged sometime prior, Mm -hmm. but they're in the middle of it. Now, if you're in the middle of a commitment like this, so you're married in quotes, but you haven't yet taken your wife into your home, how in the world might Joseph's world have been Mm -hmm. rocked Mm -hmm. to discover, which he actually already knew, that Mary was pregnant? It would be devastating. Devastating. I I, I know a young woman who was engaged to a young man and she found out just a couple of weeks before the wedding that throughout the time of their engagement that he had been sleeping with a couple of other women. And she was just crushed, Mm -hmm. just absolutely emotionally crushed, Mm -hmm. obviously called off the wedding. But I think just what that did to her was really scarring. Mm. And isn't it true, too, that in addition to that, Mary was living under the shadow of the Mosaic law. I mean, Mm -hmm. this was not just something of propriety. This was something of law and justice. And the law was pretty severe with those who were found to be outside of it. In fact, Joseph had the legal recourse to actually have Mary stoned to death if she had been unfaithful to him during this season. That's drastic. It's interesting to me in verse 19... Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, as you just said, you know, Mart, the law was important, the Mosaic law during this time, he could have taken recourse. In looking at that faithful to the law context, it really means just in terms of a lover of justice. Joseph was a lover of justice. Mm. Maybe not necessarily a lover of just the law, but a lover of the concept of Mm. justice. That's good. I like thinking about that with him because, you know, you're thinking to yourself, well, she's pregnant. Mm. And Joseph goes, well, I didn't sleep with her, so I know it's not me. So she Mm. must have been unfaithful with someone else in the scenario you just described, Bill. But he's faithful to the law, 
but he just doesn't want to hurt her. So he decides that he's going to privately divorce her, quietly divorce her. It's just so foreign to the way we, in our day, in our part of the world, fall in love and mm-hmm. promise mm-hmm. to marry and make it legal. They had not had a chance to mm-hmm. fall in love mm-hmm. in that emotional sense, right? Mm-hmm. Probably not. Probably, but we aren't told, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So the comments you make about him being a just man before the law, that has a richness all of its own. Mm-hmm. It does. Without all of the emotion that we usually associate yeah. with those early days. He could be in his head in the right sense, if you will. Yeah. And it goes back to what Bill was saying about his character. In verse 20, after Joseph had considered this, that's such a mm-hmm. powerful word. It means to be matured mm-hmm. by extended thought. To contemplate, uh-huh. to meditate on something. So yeah. he'd come up with this way to preserve Mary's honor and still be faithful and just to the law and hold up his own character. Mm-hmm. And that was to divorce her quietly, just so that... Most people wouldn't know about it and it wouldn't shame her and et cetera. And then an angel appears to him in verse 20 and tells him, wait, this is from God. She's pregnant with the Holy Spirit. And Joseph's world is rearranged. How is Jesus described in verse 21? Mary will give birth to a son mm-hmm. and he will save his people from their sins. And his name will be Jesus. Jesus. Which was the father's prerogative, right? Excellent, Bill. So in a way, the angel is calling Joseph not only just back to his relationship with Mary, but he's calling him forward into a mm. father relationship with the son Jesus that Mary a will step. have. A stepfather relationship. Mm -hmm. And for the father to name the son is a symbol and a gesture of adopting that child as well. So it's not just about her seemingly being unfaithful to you. It's about you being faithful to her because this is from God. She will give birth to a son who will save people from their sins and you will name him Jesus you like this person, Joseph, don't you? I like him. The way we began the program is, as Bill pointed out, he never says a word, but through his actions, he says much. In fact, at the very end, let's go back to the way this story ends, verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary home to his home. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm hearing here. In other words, he said, I'm not leaving her. I will be the father to this child. He didn't consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Christmas changed Joseph from a grieving, ruined, devastated, betrothed groom to a committed, trusting husband of Mary, and he accepted her son as his own. Another helpful perspective in our series called Christmas Changes Everything. And in that segment, reflecting on how, for Joseph, it really was true that in so many ways, Christmas changed everything. And as I said, we don't have record of any words that Joseph spoke, but we can certainly imagine what he might have been thinking as these events unfolded. Well, this is Discover the Word with your friends Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, and Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day will join them for the next part of this study when they talk about the other baby in the Christmas story whose birth was foretold by an angel and why that baby's father was dumbstruck by not only the news that he and his wife were pregnant, but 
by the way the news was delivered. And in fact, he was at a loss for words for the entire pregnancy. Who he was, who his famous son was, and how Christmas changed everything is what we'll discover after this word about Elisa's new book, Christmas Changes Everything. Yeah, great to have you here at the table for this special Christmas study here on Discover the Word as Elisa leads the group through how Christmas changes everything. And talking with Elisa about this, she says she just loves this material and this approach to thinking about Christmas. How for all these people we read about in the Christmas story, their lives were never the same because of Jesus' birth. For each of them, Christmas changed everything. Like for us, when Christmas truly becomes Christmas for us, it changes the course of our lives. Well, Elisa has also written a book on this called Christmas Changes Everything. And I would encourage you to get a copy of that book. It'll help you dig deeper into these stories and ideas, and it may be a way for you to introduce others to how an encounter with Jesus could change everything for them. Here's how to get a copy or copies of the book Christmas Changes Everything by Elisa Morgan. Just go to our discovertheword.org website and click the store tab up at the top of the page. There in the store, you'll find the book and you'll be able to order. So again, discovertheword.org, click store and look for Christmas Changes Everything. And now that other miracle baby born at Christmas time and how for his parents, Christmas changed everything. Have you ever missed Christmas? You know, have you ever like just spaced it, missed it, somehow it didn't get you? I'm actually thinking of a time when we were teenagers in my family and my single mom decided to not do Christmas in our traditional way. Instead, she took us from our suburban home in Houston, Texas, down to a beach where she'd rented this little condo for us. And it was so weird (laughs) to Mm. be on the beach at Christmas for us that I really felt like I missed Christmas. When we went back home, I was like, what happened to Christmas kind of thing? Yeah. For me, I have a pretty terrible traumatic experience, actually. Mm. 10 a.m. Christmas morning when I was 15, I found out my grandma had passed away in the night. And that changed Christmas a lot that year. It was a year that I felt like we missed Christmas. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. The more we talk about it, the more I can begin to think, too, of times when I was either out of town or something happened in the family. So, yeah, there probably have been more times than I remember right now of missing Christmas. Have you ever, like, had the flu? At Christmas. I mean, I can remember one Christmas when my husband was just out, just could not move. Mm -hmm. And it changed a lot of Christmas. In a similar way, Elisa, one year, a couple of weeks before Christmas, Marlene had an emergency appendectomy. So she was laid low for about a month and a half. Mm. And so for our family, Christmas wasn't what it normally was because she was not able to be involved in it. Mm. So whether it's a silly thing like going to the beach or a very heavy life experience and change like a grandmother dying or illness, etc. There are times when we put our fingers on it that we can feel like Christmas just passed us by. As we continue these conversations about how truly Christmas changes everything, we've been looking at all these characters in the Christmas story, Mary, Joseph, and and we come to a character that 
is familiar to us, and yet we can actually miss him if we don't pay attention. Uh, We're going to look at the story of Zechariah and read several verses about what happened with him. In fact, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 and picking it up in verse 5, and then I just want to skate down to about verse 17 and get the feel for what's happening here. Mark, would you start it off, and then maybe Daniel, and we'll see how far we get. All right. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife, Elizabeth, was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. Okay, I'm going to stop us there. There's a lot of information given in just those verses. What do you hear about who Zechariah is? Well, he sounds very different from the priests that we're normally running into in the Gospels, it seems like, because he's described as a really good guy. And it seems like a lot of the times when we encounter priests in the Gospels, they're very adversarial, very Mm. belligerent, very combative. He just seems like a different kind of dude. Bill, if somebody were to say, why would priests be like that? Not great guys, you mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, some of it, I think, goes back to the fact that by the time of Jesus, the priesthood had become kind of a vested aristocracy, Mm -hmm. uh, and they lived apart from the common people. And some of their belligerence in the Gospels is because they saw Jesus as a threat Mm. to their position and their status. And so... It sounds to me like Zechariah is really different from that. Okay, good insight. And we've got Zechariah, who is from the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife was the descendant of Aaron. Mm -hmm. And yes, you're right, blameless. And then what does verse 7 tell us? But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. They're childless. Okay. Is that a big deal? Ding, ding, ding. We should be thinking about (laughs) Abraham and Sarah at this point, right? It's kind of a throwback in the story to, hey, we've heard this story before. Yes. Yeah. Echo, echo, echo. And so when you didn't have children, something was missing in your life, especially for the woman, but also for the man. No heir. Often it was credited to a couple that there was some kind of sin in their lives that they didn't have mm-hmm. children, but were told they were righteous, they were blameless. Okay, let's go and read a little bit more, Daniel. Pick it up in verse 8. Once when he was serving as priest before God, and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. I bet he was. (laughs) But then the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord." He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
Okay, what's unusual about this particular moment in Zechariah's life? Where is he and what's he doing? Maybe we should ask what's normal about this situation <laughs> for him because a lot, a lot happens that obviously he doesn't expect. And it's interesting too, the way it starts. He's chosen mm-hmm. by lot. His section mm-hmm. happens, and I say that with mm-hmm. air quotes, happens to be on mm-hmm. duty. And there's so many pieces of this that feel like I think this is more than coincidence that he's the one that's offering incense. And then, of course, the angel shows up and we realize, oh, yeah, there's a lot more going on here than just someone being chosen by lot to go offer incense. And I think it's also interesting. You were talking, Daniel, how the description of Zechariah and Elizabeth was a throwback to Abraham and Sarah. The description of the child as being raised as a Nazarite uh, no strong drink, all those kind of things, also harkens back to the Old Testament character, Samson, whose Good. pre-birth was described that way. And this is a, a kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him to be the one in this inner place, making these prayers and these offerings. And he's told that he's going to have a child, and it's John the Baptist is who we know it's going to be. I think it's interesting, too, that Zechariah's response in verse 18 is what, Mart? He says, uh, how can this be? <laughs> I'm an old man. My wife is also well along in years. I think he's very gentle with Elizabeth. He <laughs> confesses he's an old man. He uses a little bit softer language when describing his wife. I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> that is very cool. And Gabriel responds in verse 19, the angel, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words. That sounds harsh. It It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's another reason we can miss Christmas. (laughs) We can miss Christmas because we're struggling to really believe that Christmas is real. We're struggling with some aspect of God's character in our lives, something he's allowed We've not yet seen him in the loving form of the gift of Jesus. We've been wounded. We've been stuck on what Haddon Robinson used to call the barbed wire of life. And I think maybe our friend Zechariah is having such a moment here himself. He knows that God is one who keeps his promises. It's interesting, his name means the Lord is remembered. Hmm. And yet Zechariah has not experienced experienced God's provision of a child. And so when Gabriel, who represents God, I mean, literally here, tells him what's going to happen, Gabriel's response is in verse 20 is, you'll be silent because you did not believe, believe my words. Yeah, there has to be something different in Zechariah's response or attitude because we saw in an earlier conversation that Mary has a similar response to the angel's message to her. In a sense, Zechariah is saying, we're too old. And in a sense, she's saying, I'm too young. (laughs) And yet she doesn't get her hand slapped, in a sense, for for doubting the message of the angel. He kind of talks her through it and helps her to come to some understanding. So there has to be something in his attitude or in his spirit or something that causes the angel to respond. Because I think you're right, Mark. It does sound harsh if we just take it at face value and don't see that maybe there's more going on than the text gives us. I think that's so good, Bill. And yes, looking at Mary as someone who 
asked the question, how can this be? That was her response. Yeah. We talked about how there was this kind of innate curiosity in her, you know, like, Shazam, how's this going to happen kind of thing? Yeah. I, I'm a virgin. And Zechariah's seem, you know, as an older man in life who's walked through a lot, has seen a lot of who God is, he struggles. He struggles mm-hmm. in a different way. He struggles with doubt. And I think that's just powerful. I mean, Zechariah went out from this place, and sure enough, he was struck, unable to speak, but he was able to somehow communicate with his wife, Elizabeth, and we'll look at her story as well. She did become pregnant. She did give birth to John. And later, as they were presenting John, everybody said, well, name him Zechariah, name him Zechariah, because that's after you. And Zechariah is very clear that that should not be his name and insists his name be John. And clearly he has crossed over from whatever spot of doubt he was in into a place of belief. Christmas changes Zechariah from a doubting man. Maybe it was just a moment, but it was a doubting time for him into a believing father, even in his old age. And I wonder if part of that is because as harsh as it feels, there is kind of a hidden gift in this for him. And that is that, you know, for Elizabeth, she's going to know this miracle's real because she's going to feel it in her body. Whereas for the guy, he doesn't have a bodily experience in pregnancy like she does. And yet Zechariah does because the whole time that the pregnancy's going on, he can't speak. So even he gets this very real sense of the miracle mm. that's happened and gets to experience it in a way that probably changed his perspective on how real God was for the rest of his life. I think that's good, Daniel. And also the people who witnessed his inability to speak. It had a way of reinforcing, yeah, there is something else going on here. Yeah, understandably, Zechariah struggled to believe the message of the angels. So many reasons having a son with Elizabeth at that point in their lives felt just too supernatural. But Christmas changes everything, and Zechariah was never the same again. He was changed. Unbelief was changed to belief, as that first Christmas changed everything for Zechariah. But certainly everything changed for his wife, Elizabeth, too. And her experience holds some tremendous insights into how Christmas changes everything. I wonder if you can think about a time when you were really overwhelmed and rejoiced. Because I think that's kind of a weird word for us to use, and yet it's all over the Christmas story. (laughs) Have Mm. you rejoiced? What what was it like, and what was it about? Well, we were in a really difficult financial time, and the Lord provided for us financially in a very unexpected way. And uh, we celebrated that provision. Mm. So it had something to do with God. Yeah. Okay. I think the thing that comes to mind for me is finishing seminary because it took longer (laughs) for me because I was working full time and had a family and doing other work stuff and all that. And so that was just a lot of hard work for a long period of time. And I remember going to graduation and it just felt different with my whole family being there and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. It was a moment to really celebrate and rejoice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember there was a time when we needed to move from a very small house uh, to a larger house. My wife's uh, stepmom needed a place to live. You know, we looked and we looked. And when the 
house showed up, and then the financial provision came as well. It was like, yeah, this is this is amazing. Mm -hmm. It was That's a happy good. day. Is it possible to rejoice even when you're lamenting, or grieving, or struggling, or even wondering or doubting? That's harder. Mm -hmm. I think a version of that that I've experienced is at funerals for my grandma, for others. Hmm. When you start telling stories about just memories you have of her, as sad as we were, there was also a lot of laughter mm. and a lot of rejoicing over those things that she had made our life better in these ways. Okay. And so that's what comes to mind for me is where, you know, sometimes funerals are that awkward moment where all that gets mixed together. Yeah. You know, that's a good thought. Yeah, because it's interesting, isn't it, how often in those kinds of settings stories are told. And uh, we end up laughing, and we feel guilty for laughing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm actually thinking about a season when Evan and I were waiting for a child through adoption, and it had been just forever, like four years it felt like. And I felt really strongly that I needed to trust that God was going to give us a baby. And so I arbitrarily set a deadline, <laughs> which hmm. is not always a great idea. But, you know, I just set a deadline, a baby by Christmas, God. I thought, you know, that kind of is in scripture. Jesus was a baby born at <laughs> Christmas, <laughs> whatever. Anyway, and I, I set up this tree and I tied pink and blue ribbons on its branches. And I would stop there every day and pray, God, could we have a baby by Christmas? And we didn't get a baby by Christmas. We didn't get a baby until the next Easter. And I actually, I left that tree up for a long time and my neighbors <laughs> thought it was kind of weird. But there was something within that act that for me expresses this concept of rejoicing differently than just the bells tolling or just the glad tidings. It, it, there was this kind of, I'm going to choose to hold on to God's goodness even when life doesn't seem so great. And I'm not sure that's a totally, you know, exegetical definition of rejoice. But to me, in action, it helped me to express what it means to hold on to God and His goodness, no matter what. It's hard for me to get a hold of it. It just seems like it it should have had the opposite effect on you when you're dead. Well, I did get depressed. <laughs> I did get depressed. I'm not trying to skate over that. But there was a way in which it also reminded me that God wasn't on the same timetable I was on, that God's character was still good, even if I didn't see the results in that moment. And when we consider the Christmas story and all the characters and how Christmas changed them, I, I think about Elizabeth, this woman who was childless in her old, old age, and yet clung to God's goodness. And we're going to see her response of rejoicing, but her response really came out of her lifetime. It wasn't just this one minute of, okay, now God's good. There was this long-term trusting in God's goodness. And in fact, her name actually means oath of God, consecrated to God's goodness. Mm. And before we read, you know, I think we kind of know some stuff about Elizabeth. Let's just net out a bit of her story, and then we'll pick up some of the verses. Tell us who Elizabeth was. Well, we saw in our last conversation that she was the wife of Zechariah, who was the priest that Gabriel visited and informed that God was going to give them a son. 
And so this is the wife part of that relationship that we saw in the last conversation. And because we know the story, we know the son was going to be the forerunner of the Christ. John the Baptist. Yeah, Yeah, and she comes out of a family that's kind of a a power family. (laughs) Her roots go all the way back to Aaron, which is the whole priestly line comes out of Aaron and out of his family. So she's a part of a really, really important family line as well. And she's said to be blameless and without fault, righteous, as uh, actually Zechariah is described this way, but Luke tells us so was Elizabeth. It's interesting to me that we get Elizabeth's story more as a shadow to other people's stories. We see her interacting in the background of Zechariah's story. We see her interacting with Mary, who is said to be a relative of hers. In Luke chapter 1, verse 36, she's a relative of Mary's. You know, It's interesting to see that, but we don't really get to see Gabriel or somebody saying, yo, you're going to have a baby in that first-person experience, do we? No, and that's, again, you know, we've talked about this a lot on the program, but given the kind of patriarchal nature of the culture, it's not surprising that a lot of time would be spent on Zechariah's part of the story and Elizabeth, even though she's the one who's actually going to give birth to this child, uh, her part of the story kind of lags behind a little bit. That's just kind of the nature of the patriarchal culture where men get most of the attention. Yeah. And it almost sounds right now like we're overlooking the many, many years, the decades of childlessness, which in that Mm -hmm. culture, as we've said before, was a real issue. Huge. Because it seemed to reflect on God's attitude, his his acceptance or favor. Mm -hmm. If you were childless, it it was commonly viewed that you did not hold God's favor. You Mm -hmm. could even have been sinful and somehow missed it. And yet Luke is very clear in his description that Elizabeth was righteous, that she was blameless. Because of the amount of shame culturally that would come upon a couple who was childless and because there could oftentimes be assumptions of sin and so forth that had produced that. It kind of made me wonder if that's why Luke was so specific about them being blameless and all those different things, that he was trying to clear the air for them. I mean, obviously we don't know because he doesn't tell us, but it just it seems like he's making a really big point about something. And it may be he's responding to the cultural misconception of who they could have been. Let's read some of the verses that do describe her. Mart, could you grab Luke one twenty four, And then Daniel, could you get Luke one thirty nine to 46? And then Bill, could you read Luke one fifty seven to 58? And let's listen for how Christmas changed Elizabeth. Christmas meaning the coming of the message of Jesus. Okay, verse 24 follows on Zechariah's coming home from the temple. Good. And it says, soon afterward, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. Hmm. And in verse 25, what is her response then, Mart? It says, how kind the Lord is. He's taken away my disgrace of having no children. Mm. Which reflects the pain, doesn't it? That's yeah, right. Yeah. And my translation says, in these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace, what we just talked about. Okay, then Luke chapter 139 to 45, Daniel. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. 
And why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. So Elizabeth's really thrilled that she Mm -hmm. herself has a baby growing in her womb. But what happens here as Mary and Elizabeth see each other? Well, Zechariah had said that the child that he and Elizabeth would have would be the forerunner, the one who would announce the coming of the Messiah. And now that baby's doing that before he's even born. Mm -hmm. He's he's already on the job, in a sense. (laughs) In verse 41, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and the baby leaps. We know it is possible to to feel babies kicking in their mother's womb. So this is a true joyful leaping within this pregnancy. But the rejoicing that Elizabeth's experience is as much about God's goodness to her as it is about God's goodness to our world. Yeah. And you know what really jumps out to me too is in verse 15, when the angel's talking to Zechariah, he says, even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then up here with Elizabeth, you have, she was filled with the Holy Spirit and the baby leaps in her womb. So it's like this fulfillment already within chapter one of the promise that uh, Zechariah was given. Mm. And then Bill, could you read those last couple of verses, 57 and 58? When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. Mm Mm-hmm. So the joy becomes contagious. Elizabeth rejoices at God's goodness, at his oath to her. And then she rejoices at Jesus in his mother's womb. And then all rejoice at God's goodness. Hmm. There's this way in which rejoicing comes to this woman who is barren and disgraced. And as she experiences and trusts in and holds on to God's goodness, she becomes a rejoicing mother, her favor restored. And she also becomes a witness of God's promises fulfilled with the baby in her womb and then from her womb in the world as he does become the forerunner of the Christ. Rejoicing takes on a a really different concept for me. And maybe it does for you guys too, it is, as you think about it, it is really a, a trusting in God's goodness, almost in concentric circles. You know, sometimes we have to experience it ourselves in order to see God's provision in the world. And sometimes it's the other way around. We see it in God's provision in the world and then concentrically down into our own hearts. But this is a woman for whom Christmas changed everything as she embraced the act of rejoicing in God's goodness. Yeah, that other miraculous birth that's part of the Christmas story and how for Zechariah and Elizabeth both, in their own ways, Christmas changed everything. Well, one more segment left in the first half of our study for Christmas this year. And in this segment, they're going to talk about the shepherds. How did they get into the circle of getting a birth announcement about Jesus? Because uh, think about when a baby is born. How do the parents announce the little one's birth? Well, usually certain people get a phone call and then those people help spread the word with calls or texts or emails that include all the vital information about it being a girl or boy, weight, length, 
that sort of thing. And social media now usually has a role in spreading the news at some point too. But shepherds, I mean, they just seem like kind of a strange group of people to be some of the first to know about Jesus' birth and then tasked with spreading the news. And the fact that they received that announcement likely made a pretty big impact on their lives, don't you think? And so how did having angels tell them about Jesus' birth and then actually seeing a baby in a manger, just like they'd been told, affect them? It sure would make sense that that experience would change them, that going forward for them, Christmas changed everything. What images come to your mind when you think about the shepherds in the Christmas story? How do you picture them? Little kids in bathrobes <laughs> is how I picture And a bath towel on their head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But now you've traveled in the Middle East, I right? Have. I have. You've seen shepherds in the fields. Yeah. What are they like? Well, the ones that I've seen, a lot of them are kids. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. My first image is Ethan. My son was maybe, oh, three or four, but it was some kind of a cap. And he had cotton balls all over this cap. And he was a little sheep in the Christmas story. And I'll never forget that. He, he was so precious. Okay, so back to real life. We do have some funny concepts of how we interpret them. If you think back to the, the reality of what shepherds look like in Israel, it's probably more like a young man, maybe 12, 13 years old, like what you're talking yeah. about. We're looking at this great Christmas story from the people, the perspective of the various characters. And we're arranging our study this week around how Christmas changes everything. So far, we've talked about Mary and how Christmas changed her. Wow. You know, one day she's a virgin, betrothed. <laughs> Next day, she's pregnant with the Son of God. And Joseph, you know, how he didn't know what was going on. And one day he's betrothed, thinking his wife is faithful. And then suddenly he thinks she isn't. Mm-hmm. And an angel appears to him. And suddenly he's the father, the stepfather of the Son of God. With this enormous responsibility. Yes. No kidding. Yes. Today, we want to go out to the field. And take a look at the shepherds and how this Christmas story, this night, changed everything for them. So we're going to go into Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, and read again a very familiar story. But let's think about maybe even picturing ourselves there as one of the shepherds in the field. How does Christmas change them? So let's divide this up. Maybe, Bill, will you want to start us off and then Martin, then I'll pick it up. Okay, Luke 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Let's stop there for a second. What are we talking about here, a census? Give us some context. They were occupied by Rome, weren't they? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the census, I think, had something to do with taxes because they had to have a proper count of how many people so they could know how much tax to expect and so forth like that. Okay, we're kind of familiar with this concept ourselves. Much of this still is true today. Okay, let's pick up then in verse 4, Mart. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee, and he took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged 
who is now expecting a child. Okay, let's just pause there again. This is so neat from Luke's perspective. We looked yesterday at Joseph from Matthew's perspective, and Joseph was all a Twitter and all up in arms, and just his whole world had been turned upside down. And now it looks like everything's kind of settled down, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. What do you see in these verses that tell you he's processed to a new place? For this registration, he's taking her with him, Mm -hmm. and he has kind of absorbed this whole thing because she's expecting a child, but they're still pledged to be married. And that's interesting because Matthew actually talked about how he took her to his home. We get the impression that, okay, now they are married. We don't quite understand the timing of Mm -hmm. all of this from the different gospel writers' perspectives, but there is a settledness in Joseph Mm -hmm. here. Just as you said, she's now of his household, and his household is of what family? David. Why is that important? It's related to the messianic expectation. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so the Messiah was to come from the line of David. Joseph was from the line of David. And he's going from Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to register. Okay, then in verse 6, you want to pick that up again, Bill? While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Okay. In verse 8, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. But the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us. So, Mart? They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Mm. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Interesting. I guess that... In Jewish cultures, sometimes shepherds were not really respected. In fact, the Talmud actually would not allow shepherds to testify in courtrooms because they were kind of... Sketchy. Sketchy, that's the word. And then, Mart, what does verse 8 say? Verse 8 says, That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby guarding their flocks of sheep. Great. And probably what were those flocks for? Was there a purpose for those lambs Mm. near Bethlehem here? Yeah, Bethlehem was not far from Jerusalem. And uh, many believe that the lambs, the sheep that are in question here, were actually sacrificial lambs being raised for the temple in Jerusalem. Yeah, there is a, a passage from the Jewish Mishnah that suggests that these flocks were actually intended and raised for temple sacrifice. I think that's important to think about. Here these shepherds know that they have a kind of a holy task, guarding 
that's a strong word, watching over, guarding, making sure the wolves or someone didn't come in and steal the very sacrificial lambs that would be used for the Passover. Then here comes the angel of the Lord. And it's interesting in verse 9, it says that it is the angel of the Lord, and it's not given a name like we saw in another passage where it was Gabriel. Some commentators suggest that this was God himself coming and revealing himself to the shepherds. Isn't it a little bit ironic that God would reveal himself to the lowest rung of the ladder in terms of shepherds in a field watching over lambs? Well, I think it's really important that as you go through the story, he ends up reaching out to everyone, the unwashed and the washed, the wise and the unwise, the high and the low. I mean, everybody's kind of included in this story. I love that. And because in verse 9 and 10, let's look at those again. An angel of the Lord appears to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And there were what? They're terrified. I think I would be terrified. Mm -hmm. But the angel says, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people today, verse 11, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. Make yourself a shepherd in a field watching over the sacrificial Mm -hmm. lambs and God himself in his presence of an angel somehow and the glory and the splendor and et cetera goes today, right this minute, a Savior is born, not just to some people over there or for the future or, you know, to the really godly. It's born to you, you, you 12-year-old shepherd, you, you lower rung of the ladder, you, you shepherd in the field, you anonymous being that nobody knows is here. The Messiah who saves is born hmm. to you. It's so personal. Yeah. So what are they going to do with this? Can you imagine being out there and yeah. experiencing this? Who's going to believe us? Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's right. And what are we going to say? And are they even sure they believe it? Yeah. I love that you're pulling that out because what they do is they get up and they say, let's go see. Let's go see. Let's go prove yeah. this out, which is so understandable. It's so relatable, isn't it? And so they get up and they go to see. They hurry off, in fact, in verse 16. And they find Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. That's in verse 17. Mm. Who becomes the first eyewitness? Who becomes the first evangelist of the birth of It shouldn't be, should it? No. The shepherds should not have been the ones. Mm. It's an unlikely story, isn't it? Is, it? Yeah. it is. And what's beautiful about the shepherds is that they illustrate that Christmas changes everything in their personal lives, and it also changes everything in their spiritual life. You know, here they are in a field watching over the lambs who are going to be used for the sacrifice. And then God appears and draws them to a manger where they worship the lamb who will become the sacrifice for all of our sins. And then they go out to tell the story to others of the good news of what they've witnessed that was exactly the way God said it would be. Yes, indeed. Christmas changes everything. Glad to have you at the table for this episode of the Discover the Word podcast. Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, and Bill Crowder, along with Daniel Ryan Day, exploring five people or groups of people like the shepherds whose lives were changed forever because of what happened that night 2,000 years ago and the far-reaching effect it had on where their lives went. It changed them. And when we come to grips with God's plan of rescue through Jesus, this baby that the shepherds went to see, uh, it changes everything for us too. 
Well, in the second half of this study, Mart and Lisa and Bill and Daniel will be back at the table to continue looking at Christmas and celebrating its life-changing impact on the world. They'll look at Simeon and Anna, the Magi, and Herod as we learn more about how Christmas changes everything. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Now here at Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries, it is our mission to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. And when you give a financial gift, your donation provides the fuel that's needed to help us accomplish that mission. You can give a special year-end gift when you visit our website at discovertheword.org. Look for the Donate tab. It's up there at the top of the page. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedding. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.